Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Millennial in the Middle. I'm Connor DeLynn, and today I'm about to play for you an interview with a gentleman named Eric Espinoza. This guy has done everything, it seems like, and he's still in his 20s. Like, it is pretty impressive. Uh, he started a company while he was in college called Venture Validator, which turned out to be a business that would help startups decide if their idea had validity, if that was something that investors should uh, invest in and in helping people decide if that was a uh, business idea that had some legs and they should pursue or not. And then he used this business to then create the business that he runs now, which is called Coconut VA, uh, VA standing for virtual assistance. It's basically the concept of talent across the world, so internationally, that will work in the American economy and have jobs that are fully remote. And, uh, you know, they're low-paying jobs by American standards, but for the, these virtual assistants that live in other countries, it's anywhere from five to 12 times what they could make in their own country. So he has devoted, you know, his you know business mission now to helping create this win-win with an abundance mentality. And with this mindset of borders are not something that should be permanent and it is a big world out there and there's so much we can learn. And he has done it by example. Uh, he has been a digital nomad and like done this living all over the world and experienced a lot of different cultures. He actually went to the Philippines and lived the life of one of his virtual assistants that he employs, uh, you know, the many virtual assistants up uh, in uh, assistance that his company helps employ, I should say. Uh, he went and lived that life and lived on their wages and lived in the same place. And the lessons that he learned from that, uh, I think are really, really powerful. And we dive into all that and more here on this interview. I hope you enjoy it. If you want to check him out, he's awesome on LinkedIn. Go to LinkedIn. It's Eric Espinoza. And again, his company is Coconut VA. Thanks for listening. Eric Espinoza, thank you so much for having uh, for being coming on the show today. This is going to be really fun. Thank you, I appreciate having. I've listened to quite a few episodes that you have, and uh, I'm looking forward to. It. Actually, I'm starting a podcast myself. I've been taking down some notes of how Connor does. I'm like, oh, that's an interesting way that I want to copy. Very cool. Well, uh, you know, maybe if I have anything interesting to say, I'll be more than happy to come on your show at your point. You certainly will be on. there. <laughs> I, I love the re reciprocity that happens with podcasters, right? Of just kind of this abundance mentality of there's so many good ideas out there and interesting ideas and concepts. And I am such a, such an advocate of people hosting those conversations and trying to put good content out to the world. So I wish you the best of luck with that. I didn't even know that. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Well, I want to start here. On your LinkedIn, you make a pretty bold claim in your bio. You say that you are a stress-free CEO. And I read that and I'm like, this guy has either cracked some code that I am not aware of, or he's just a liar. Like, what is the case? <laughs> so, so tell me this, Eric, what does that mean that you're a stress-free CEO? Oh, interesting. I, can't remember, I didn't remember I actually put that. Um, is it you weren't true? stressed at true? the time? <laughs> no, I guess I wasn't. Well, there are, there are different phases. There are very much different phases in your company. And, um, I bet you when I put that, I was in a, uh, not growth phase. I was in a continuation phase. I've already yeah. done a lot of the growth. Um, but yeah, I think there are ways to go about a company in which, um, your ship is sinking. It is an emergency, all hands on deck. 
nothing is more important than your business. Your family takes second second choice, your body, your mental health, everything is like second to your company. And not only are you stressed out, you make sure that everyone else knows that you're stressed out. And you bring your whole life into this ship. And um, it's just a sucky way to live life and for your family to experience that. So that used to be me. And that's not me anymore. <laughs> you know, I think that's really interesting you say that because a lot of people I feel wear stress as a badge of honor, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I have so much going on. I'm so successful. I've got so many balls in the air. Like, oh, life is crazy. And at the end of the day, that type of vibe isn't that impressive. Like, there's nothing about that that makes yeah. you say, I, and I want to follow that person to the ends of the earth. And so what have you found as you've led your companies from a calm, relaxed place? How has that made a difference to the times that you're feeling like you're running around with a chicken cut off, a chicken with your head cut off? Yeah, I think there's actually two pieces uh, to this, and I don't know which one's more interesting to talk about. I think one is just the mindset that you go about uh, with things and, and the mindset that you have to have as an entrepreneur, especially uh, with the family dynamic. I think the second uh, piece is um, putting yourself in, yes, you are unique as an entrepreneur, but your special abilities is the fact that you're not special. And it's actually finding people that you can trust to replace yourself so that you're no longer at the helm of a lot of these things and therefore you are stress-free. Wow. Okay. There's so much to unpack right there. <laughs> uh, one, I, I love that con that concept of the fact that you're not special trying to build something that can outlast you and you don't need to be hands-on to do. Uh, what, what have you found is your way to try and take you out of the equation and not set up businesses that rely solely on your genius or your skill? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think it comes down to introspection and understanding what is the base skill that I have and now finding other people that have that base talent or base skill and then growing them to it. And the introspective part comes in where you need to pick apart the principles that make you you or make your product your product. Uh, and if you can do that, you can teach anybody to do what you do. So at its core, that's kind of like my history of I've, I you know, was a professor at BYU, actually still as a student. And I had access to a lot of uh, really good talent from uh, interns. I couldn't use them though, because I thought, oh, I'm the only person that can do this process. And frankly, I, I was, it was a market research business at the time. I was probably one of the only people in the world that could do these focus groups, testing business ideas in such an elegant way to get as much information. But holding on to that, like you said, it's a badge of honor to run around and say I'm so stressful. I held it as a badge of honor that only I can do this process mm -hmm. and that you're just holding the, the bottleneck on your potential saying that I can't teach other people to do this. So really it's a process of you know, starting with their coming out of yourself and understanding that you're really not that special. You just need to uh, break things down uh, into more teachable segments. Yeah, I, I really think that is think that's wise. I think we are so focused sometimes on our own ego and what we try to bring to the table yeah. that the moment you can flip that and actually look at yourself, you know, from an external standpoint, what am I good at? Where are my weaknesses at the same time and building around that? 
you know, something that we talked about before we recorded the podcast resonated with me because I've been harping on this over the last couple months. And unprompted, you said your goal that you're working on in life right now is self-actualization. Uh, I actually just put out a video on uh, social media a couple weeks ago that said, you know, I feel that these new generations, as we continue to evolve, are less and less focused on safety and belonging and all these, uh, you know, lower level values at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And we're heading towards self-actualization. So as you say that, I am so curious to hear how you have actually applied that. And let's start with what does self-actualization even mean to you? Mm. So at its core, uh, I, I as an individual, uh, am hell bent on personal progress towards perfection. And I guess the way I see it is, uh, yeah, you have the perfect, the ideals, um, that might not be obtainable, but that's the goal that you strive for. That's your North star and that you can be happy so long as you are on the journey towards that doesn't matter where you're at doesn't matter if you're at the, the, the very beginning if you're in the middle if you're nor towards the end but the direction and the um magnitude uh, that you're you're taking towards that the velocity is important um this is it's definitely been my north star that got me to where i'm at now i'm having some uh internal life coach crises as i find out that that's the voice of the judge in my head and maybe that's probably not the best uh, mindset to get me to where I want to go. But that's what's led me to where I've been. Uh, with that, though, it's, you know, helping, helping yourself hit your potential and be the best you that you are, and naturally wanting other people to be the best them that they are, and understanding that each of us are unique tools in a toolbox, and you don't want a drill to be a hammer, and you don't want a screwdriver to be a measuring tape. Be whatever you are and put yourself in an environment to sharpen your skill set to be the very best thing that you are, not being jealous of other people and what they are or being upset of what you aren't. I think that journey is uncovering what is your true potential and then removing the roadblocks that keep you from actually fulfilling that. Hmm. And I think that's really well said. I get asked a lot of times by people that are, you know, kind of jumping into their careers or, you know, Gen Z, this younger generation coming out of school now wondering what's next. And there's a lot of talk about like the passion economy and people are, have the ability to go after jobs that, you know, weren't even around 10 to 15 years ago. And I think with that, it, it becomes really important to find what your skill is. So you said a minute ago, like being aware enough to know where your skills lie. How did you get to that point where you felt like you could honestly look yourself in the mirror and come up with an evaluation on yourself? Well, where your skills lie, go try a hundred things and you find out that you suck at 90 of them, but you're good at 10 of them. Uh, yeah. It really comes down to trying so many different things and learning and, and then finding out what sticks. I like that. And what would you say to a younger person that says like, okay, I, I'm really, I'm passionate about this and I'm good at it. And often the things that we're good at and that we love coincide because we as humans like being good at things, right? What would you recommend when someone finds that, that they do? Should they go learn from the best? Should they go follow that up? Should they go start their own business? Like, what have you seen? Uh, that's a really broad question that could, could give some really bad advice on. I, I, so I think like 
most people's problem is not, hey, I have this passion and I'm really good at it. Like that's like an elite problem yeah. to have. Like you're lucky if you have that problem because then it's like, yeah, yeah, see if there's a business model or a career path that that fits. I think most people struggle on just finding out what they're good at and what they're passionate about. And so with that one, my advice is honestly, go do a hundred things. Like not 99, go do a hundred. Uh, what that means you know, for a young person in school, I, I, so I went to BYU and I went to every, every single business club that there was. I went to the uh, marketing club and it was a bunch of summer sales guys trying to sell me on the membership package right there. And it was like a big turn off. Like, exactly. Like this, this really isn't my, isn't my vibe. I went to uh, the strategy group, smart kids, but they all were kind of like stiff and kind of had like a, like I will make Walmart $1 billion type of a mentality. And it wasn't me. And I, you know, I, I finally, I got to the entrepreneurship club and I felt at home. I felt, wow, these people, they think the way I think they, they do the things that, that I do. Uh, and that kind of got me a little bit further into, um, a, uh, what do you call this career classes where they have like a, a lecture series. Okay. And that's where I, I saw people that were, you know, 20, 30 years ahead of me. And I thought, wow, I know how these people think. And, and they, the, th the same thing that happens in their brain happens in my brain. So yeah, I have their potential. I haven't realized that I've got to go, go actualize that potential. And in order to do that, I've got to go learn a lot of things. And so what that meant in the context of school is going to every resource that was available, every competition, every club and getting to network in so many different opportunities. Um, and you know, from an entrepreneurship perspective, I tried 15 different ideas before I actually had the one that was going forward. And ironically enough, the business idea that won was a validation framework for validating businesses. So it's actually a market research company that spun out of that uh, failure to find a good business idea. Yeah, I, I wanna come back to that because that business model I'd like to chat about for a second. But before, I'm curious, do you feel people are born entrepreneurs or do you think they become entrepreneurs? And maybe you know, in a general sense or with you specifically, yeah. what have you felt? I think that people are born with the potential to become entrepreneurs. I don't think entrepreneurship's for everyone. I think that our society puts a lot of uh, praise on entrepreneurship, uh, wrongly so, and that it uh, makes people feel like if you're not working, building your own dream, that you are working for somebody else building their dream. And I think that's such oh. a wrong mentality because it tells somebody, hey, sorry, you know, you're, you're a, you know, a violinist, only the only the director is is the true star of the show and you're less than and it's like but if you don't have a violinist and a pianist and you know somebody playing the flute you can't make an orchestra you can't make something bigger than yourself and so that frustrates me uh, but i would say yeah there are people who are born to be entrepreneurs they need to actualize on that potential but most people aren't born to be that and that's very okay yeah i think that's a great answer i love that concept of dreams because you know, a good dream involves other people that their dream is being fulfilled at the same time, right? And it may yeah. not be the same dream, but creating that situation that's a win-win and people feel like, man, I'm a part of something bigger than myself that's winning, but I also feel confident that I can win personally as I yeah. go about this. And I think for any leader, if you can get to the point where those two things are happening, you don't have employees at that point. You have team members and you have partners. Yep. And I know that's how you've run your businesses. Uh, let's start by talking about Venture Validator. 
uh, tell me, how did that idea come up? And all of a sudden, I mean, you've had your first exit in your mid-20s, very young. It's impressive. Congratulations, by the way. How did that come about? Uh, desperation, I mean, really. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the BYU is a great incubator for ideas, a great incubator for startups. I think they're like ranked third for entrepreneurship, depending on the magazine that you want to look at. Um, sure. And they've got great mentors, great uh, teachers, really good program for entrepreneurship. And one of the things that they had was was competitions. And uh, I'm pretty competitive. And so my, my first year, I took a couple of ideas. My first idea was really dumb. It was a, a double dating app idea. I thought it was going to be the next. Double like, dating. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, meet, you meet the friends of your friends on a double date. Uh, funny. unique spin, but not unique enough that Tinder couldn't copy it. So yeah. uh, anyways, I, I went through the, the, the competition series the first year, a little bit butthurt that, oh, I didn't, I thought I would did better this person than that person. But then I matured and three or four business ideas later, the next year I went through the competitions and uh, kind of swept them and, and won $25,000 in competition money all by myself. Everyone else had team members. They had, you know, a year in it. And I came off this, you know, about 45 days from idea inception to going out to a couple of trade shows, getting a lot of backing behind it. But what happened after the competitions is I realized that there was some things that were not validated that once I, I really pried into them, when I was in the competitions, I didn't want to, didn't want to peek because I didn't want to find something that was bad about it. And after the competitions, it's like, okay, people are offering me money and $650,000 to get invested in this. I should actually look at this. And I went down that rabbit hole and, and invalidated the entire business. So here I am, a junior in, in the business program. I'm in a, a summer accelerated program. I was the person that won first place in the businesses. I've got 25K, I've got 20 of 25K left, but I don't have a business. And that was kind of a weird position to be in, but I said, okay, well, I've got a lot of ideas. I don't know what the best idea is. Um, let me start taking the best frameworks for testing ideas so that I only go forward with the one that had the most potential. And fast forward um, probably eight months and I'd helped other friends uh, with these frameworks and I'd innovated on those frameworks. And then uh, I eventually spun that up into a business called Venture Validator. That's really cool. I, there's so many good little lessons to pull out of that story. One, the ability to walk away, right? Like I think sometimes we get so emotionally invested in our idea and our cause that it is like you can't separate yourself from the business or from the idea. So the business can't fail because that means you fail, right? But being able to take a step back and say, no, let's let's this doesn't work. Let's take another path. That doesn't mean anything on me. You've got to get to that point in the first place. And second, I think it's really cool to see how that can be applied on a personal level as well, right? Of kind of looking at your own potential and trying new things and seeing, you know, what, what are you going out as you're researching this in whatever way it is to validate what you're trying to do and what you're hoping to become? Did you see those same principles you applied to business apply to individuals? Yeah, I, I think one, one kind of tangent to go off of is that, not being afraid, like it's, it's sunk costs, right? And not saying, oh, because sure. I've, I've had all this praise or I've had all this money or I've, had, I've put all this time into this and I have so much social capital invested, not being afraid to walk away if that's what your next best move is. I actually had a moment in, in my next business adventure. Well, I guess in Venture Validator, I had, had that moment where I 
had invested a couple of years into it and we had some huge LinkedIn algorithm changes, which changed how we acquire customers uh, significantly. And um, there was a point at which we had more money that was going out in payroll than we had in our bank account uh, the next morning. And you talk about stressful entrepreneurship times. That was my probably one of my lowest points in life, period. And um, I, I realized that I went, I, I really take uh, mental health and, and, and physical health seriously. So I was out biking and I sat down on a bench and I kind of realized like, wow, my business is failing. I'm, and I'm not only just, you know, walking away from this business, I'm going to be 30 K in debt. And, um, I realized though, that I, I was still happy and that even though I was stressed out of my mind, there, there was nothing internally with my internal peace that was affected by this. And I had swallowed it and realized that, you know what, like, that's okay. Like things are going to be all right. I'm not going to be any happier now than after making my first million. And that day liberated me where I no longer associated my success as Eric Neil Espinosa as a success as my business venture validator. And just as the, a man who no longer fears death has the power to go live an extraordinary life. An entrepreneur who no longer fears the failure of his business can now go create an extraordinary business. It was that moment that everything changed and we were able to get on the path to resurrect it and eventually sell it, sell it successfully. Oh, I love that. I, I think it's so important to dive down to what really matters most and what you do is not who you are, right? The, that what you end up doing and who you work for, what you, like that are all, those are all details. And knowing that you feel that self-actualization of feeling okay, and I love that concept of, you know, one of the best ways to live life is to think about death. And what a good thought uh, when it comes to a business of being like, hey, we can go create this, and if it doesn't work, we'll, we can create the next thing, and that, that's exciting. Uh, so now let's talk about your transition into Coconut BA. So you end up selling Venture Validator, right? And then tell me what that exit was like. And then you all of a sudden are going, what next? You didn't retire and go off into the sunset. <laughs> well, it's actually not, not, not as, uh, as easy as that. See, not long after, after uh, realizing um, some of the issues with, you know, with our acquisition for Venture Validator, it, it became apparent that my co-founder and I had learned all of the skills to be very successful in business, but we were uh, in a business model that yes, was doing six figures, but it was near impossible to make it go to seven figures. And so with that, we have all this potential and we don't want to waste it just because it's a sunk cost in this business. We actually had the courage to put that business on the sideline and let it actually sit as we validated and, and brought Coconut VA forward, we kind of took everything that we didn't like about the business model. We put it into a new idea, uh, ended up being a virtual assistant agency. Ironically enough, we took the idea and validated it with our product uh, at Venture Validator. And most customers, they, they've got to pay, you know, a couple grand for each time they validate it. For us, it's all internal costs. And uh, we didn't do it once, we didn't do it twice, we did it five times. And wow. within the course of a week, we were able to spit it out to test higher than any of the previous hundred client businesses we had tested. So at that point we said, Hey, this is a business model. It's, it's has the ability to go seven to eight figures. 
Um, let's stop externally marketing for coconut for a venture validator. We'll let the business that comes in just from the goodwill of that we've built up in the community. Uh, and uh, we actually had one of our uh, previous employees. He said, "Hey, I'll come in and do things on a uh, commission basis." So it, we had no overhead on that. And that actually ran and, and started funding Coconut VA for its first couple of minutes of starting. Um, and it was at a point where we wanted to, to pull our people off Venture Validator and put them in Coconut VA that we said, hey, let's sell Venture Validator. And just kind of bring it back to the first part of the conversation. You're not so important, right? You, you need to teach your people to do what you can do. And one of the frustrations that I had with Venture Validator is all potential acquirers thought that it was a consultant business based off of Eric Espinosa's brain. And because of that, they weren't acquisitions, they were hires, which means they were going to acquire them to hire me. And they never believed me when I told them, it's not me, I have virtual assistants that are running most of the business. But because I, I was full-time stepped away from the business for about six months, uh, we then had uh, quite a bit of revenue that came in without me even doing a thing that proved to acquirers that this is a, a freestanding thing. And so we were able to, to sell that. Um, and soon after I took a, a worldwide trip with my wife and uh, yeah, quite a, quite a bit. You, you know that's Nothing where I was wanted expected. to go next. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's a, a really cool realization to just be willing to flow with it, to be willing to look at the current situation and be real with yourself. Uh, and then, you know, the power of creating systems that actually you stepping away is what proved what needed to happen to actually, you know, validate that business of like, hey, this can yeah. work without you as the individual. Uh, and then you take this to the extreme. So when I started <laughs> following you on social media, then I started seeing on LinkedIn, like, this guy all of a sudden is Mr. Hashtag Vacation Laptopless. Like, <laughs> he's going all over the world and he's running companies. Like, how in the hell are you working <laughs> and running a business while being in third world countries and all over? Like, how did you even have that idea first? You know, it's something that started. I, I knew before I started Venture Validator that the reason why, like, you have to know you have to know yourself and, and what motivates you and what you're looking for. And I knew that if I were rich, I would travel. And I realized that you don't have to actually be very rich to travel. And so the whole idea was, okay, let me build Venture Validator as a way that I can be time zone autonomous and um, provide enough money for me to you know go on these excursions. And so once I realized that, hey, this isn't going to lead me to that goal, that there's, there's a little bit more responsibility than that, uh, that was the moment I said, okay, well, let me take everything I've learned and go start a new business model. I'll do it quicker. And so, yeah, that led to Coconut VA. And you're right. Um, Vacation Laptopless started as a, at first, a little bit of a joke because yeah. a lot of our customers, I realized what is, what is, what is failure for them? Well, it's when they have to take their business with them when they're on vacation and they're supposed to give their family their time and they're still checking emails, putting fires out. So I thought this, this kind of way to describe that would be vacation laptopless. If you can go without your laptop, that's success. And we had this idea of bottleneck testing. Um, I had ruined uh, one of my, my, my co-founders business, or sorry, my co-founders vacation in the previous business. You talk about stressful CEOs. <laughs> we had some issues happen. He was on a vacation in Hawaii, totally ruined his whole vacation. And so we didn't want to do that anymore. So we had this idea of 
the way that you get yourself out of the business is you teach other people how to do what you do and you pull out the principles. But if you're still in town, they're going to ask you questions anytime a difficult decision comes up and they're not going to use their full brain power to solve that issue. And so you have to just let them be free. And the best way to do that is you go vacation, give them a budget of how much they can mess up on. So I say at minimum, it has to be two times the cost of your vacation. So, Hey, if this isn't a $5,000 mistake, I don't want it in my inbox. And the very first one we did, this was actually a month after we started. Um, I said, I told my, my co-founder, I said, Hey, unless it's a $20,000 mistake, I'm in Greece for two weeks. I'm not going to respond. And that kind of started this whole trend. And we've, we've done it for, I think like six times since then. And each time we spin off something new in the business and you never take it back on. And it's very liberating. Man, that just baptism by fire, right? Like just throw <laughs> yourself into it and make it happen. I, I love that mm -hmm. mentality. And so you and your wife, what, what did you learn as you were out there traveling and having those experiences stepping away a bit? Oh, wow. So uh, we learned how to become digital nomads for the first time. I and mean, before it's like, you know, a week or two away, sometimes before with your laptop, other times now with, well, you're, like, you're just, you're just a tourist. But um, we went to Southeast Asia for a couple of months um, and we had a one-way ticket. We had nothing planned. Uh, literally, I, I was so busy with the, the acquisition and, and trying to make things, sure things were all ready for, for my departure uh, that all I had was, this was during COVID lockdowns too. All I had was two nights in a hotel in uh, Thailand booked and a one-way ticket. And I said, we'll, we'll book the rest when we're out there. And so, yeah, we went to um, Thailand, then we were, were there for a month, and then I went to the Philippines, and I was actually a virtual assistant for a month. And that was that's a whole other thing that we could talk about where I kind of did a month in their shoes and lived on their budget, um, but then went back out to uh, Thailand and then Vietnam and Indonesia uh, to Italy and San Marino and, and back home. So learning-wise, you learn a lot about your limits because so much of who you are is actually your environment. If you think about it, the food you eat is, is quite stable, right? The, the time that you exercise is very stable. Um, you have air conditioned and, or heated homes. All of this conditioning you put on yourself uh, takes away maybe your willpower or the need to exercise it. We were changing locations on average every three and a half days. We had 28, hotels that we stayed at or Airbnbs that we stayed at. So your location is changing, which means where you can work out changes, the time zone that you're working changes, uh, the food that you're eating, the ability to transfer, like all these things change, which means that you have to set up new habits everywhere you go and they don't last. And you, I, I think you find out what you're made of and a lot of the things that you thought you had control of or had a handle in life. No, you just built a good environment, but without that environment, you're nothing. Was that stressful for you to deal with that many variables and change? That's my co-founder. <laughs> um, there's positive and negatives to it. I yeah. would, so I, I work uh, quite a bit, but I would work uh, at 4 a.m. in the morning. I would start my shift for a lot of it um, because I would want to get, you know, four hours of done by, by 8 a.m. I'd be done with work and I could go play the rest of the day. And so that was quite exciting. Um, and the, 
activities that we got to do and, and the things that we got to learn. That was, that was very fun, but, um, it's, it's stressful on your body to, to do that. And, and one of the things I wasn't doing is I wasn't getting enough sleep. So I would, I would wake up at 4am, but I, I wasn't going to bed at, you know, eight or 9pm when you should be going to bed. And so, yeah, there, there's things that you learn and there's things that like are better that are, I think, enlightening. And there are things also that maybe you're taking a step back because you don't have uh, as much as the self-care routines. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I have a huge amount of respect for people that would get out of their routine and their bubble and remind themselves that there is more out there and the world does not revolve around you, especially going to a very different culture that doesn't speak your language. Like it's such a humbling thing. So I want to ask you about your time when you said you started working as a virtual assistant in the Philippines <laughs> and you lived on their budget. Like, was that just a shock to the system? How, how did that feel? It's definitely different than um, us in the States, but I got to meet other people that didn't have the benefit of the really good wage that I had. And your perspective just changes a lot. So it's, it's all perspective. I was in a 400 square foot apartment. That's, that's small. That's very small. Yeah, totally. But then I realized that, no, that's huge. I would go visit people that they live in a 200 square foot apartment. They'd have a family of, of three and they've got one bedroom and they've got like their food and everything's under the bed and, and they've got all their, their storage in there. And they have like a foyer hallway, which is the kitchen slash living room. And so all of a sudden you sit on your, your little couch in this 400 square foot room. And you're like, wow, this is a palace. This is, this is huge. This is nice. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that was, that was interesting. Uh, the other thing is, you know, you, you go to the grocery store and you find people that speak good English and you realize that they're sitting here making 75 cents to a buck 75 an hour, depending on what region they're at. And, you know, I'm living on a, on a budget that is, you know, five times that amount, uh, 10 times amount, depending on, on, on what position you're holding. So it's like, wow, like it, it really invigorated me on the opportunity that they have to make money in a U.S. economy is literally five to 12 times the amount that they can make in their own economy. Yeah, there are some sucky parts about the job that they have to work at night. Uh, and, and I had to do that. And it's not, it's not too difficult um, to get used to, except for Mondays. Mondays are difficult because Monday's actually Tuesday. And you, you've gotten used to, on the weekend, being with your family. So you switch back to a daytime. So there's a little bit of a shift there. But now you understand why people are so willing to work at night when it's like, I can literally make seven times as much money if I work my eight hours at night versus working during the day. Like, it's a no-brainer. Uh, that, that's really interesting. What, as you had conversations with these people and you were meeting, you know, these, these are real people, right? Like, all of a sudden, you're in it. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what was your thought on like the talent that's out there and the skill and the intelligence? You know, I think sometimes we're so blinders of like, we couldn't even imagine someone from another country that English is their second language helping us. Like, how did you tear those walls down? I think those walls were down before I went out there. But when I went out there, I realized um, the infrastructure that is there is phenomenal. You know, now is the best time to outsource. And there's a reason why. There, you have this, this collision of 
Yeah, sure. Pandemic happened and U.S. businesses realized that, wow, if you can work from home, you can work from, you know, oh, anywhere, a different state. Why not a different country? So now the employers are more used to employing people remotely. That's an obvious thing. But a non-obvious thing is the Philippines has had a tremendous amount of talent that has been groomed by big corporations, by Citibank, Wells Fargo, uh, AT&T, all these huge you know, multinational companies. Yeah, they have call center agents, but they have to have people managing those call center agents and the people managing the managers of those call center agents. So they actually have a, a big corporate structure of people that they've groomed in there. Now that talent, those managers have never been accessible to us though, because they have the corporate benefits and they have the, the cush job and there's, there's no reason for that talent to be unlocked. But what happened during the pandemic is those people had to go work from home or should I say got to work from home. And they, for the first time, did not have to travel through one of the most densely city, populated cities in the world to get to their job. And they realized, wow, I like working from home. I like not having to travel. I want to have, I want to go back to, uh, you know, the, the, the country out where my family is living and, and work remotely. I don't want to deal with this, this city life and traffic. And because of that, you now have these managers who are saying, hmm, are there any remote jobs or virtual assistant jobs that I can get? You now pair that with, you know, we have the corporate benefits that they experienced before. Now you're able to get people who have been managing big organizations and have all of these skills and you've unlocked that talent. It's like, once you just talk with them and you hear their experience, it's a no brainer, like all preconceived notions that they aren't as intelligent is it's such a ludicrous idea. Um, that it makes you, it makes you rethink life. Yeah. I, I love that. I think being able to see that boots on the ground, it had to be such a reminder that just like, uh, it, no, my way isn't the only way. Right. And what I'm used to doesn't mean that's the best way of going about things like being humble enough to learn from other cultures and people and realize that eh, we're way more alike than we are different. And so I, I'd love you just diving in and seeing that experience firsthand. How do you feel that changed you? And then you came back to the States and like got, went back into the office or whatever it might be. Like, did you feel you came back a different person? Certainly. Yeah. And I think, I think what, what you're saying is like, you, you realize that the more you travel, that you have to be okay with ambiguity because you realize that, you know, you're born, you're born in America and America is the best, like US of A, capitalism all the way. And then you are forced to meet people from Vietnam that live in, you know, northern part of Vietnam who are like, hey, communism is pretty great. And not that I agree with him, but he has a valid point that there are each culture uh, is optimized for a certain outcome. And Italy, for example, I, I, I lived there for a while. Italy is optimized for really good food. Like what the, the, the cultural biases and the way they act, it produces the world's finest food. America is optimized for a really good economy, world's best economy. But these different cultures, uh, you know, create different benefits and not one culture can have all of those benefits. So there is not one right way to do things. If you do, if you put your whole culture towards this direction, you get this marvelous outcome, but you have these negative side effects. And so you start realizing 
because there is no one right way to do things, um, you have conflicting ideas that sometimes just can't go. And as a traveler, you have to be okay with ambiguity and not having an answer to all things. And sometimes not even having an opinion on all things because you realize that well, you don't true. know everything. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's a very, it's a very fitting concept to think about these different cultures, like you said, that are optimized for different things, that they have what they're good at. And in a world where we have very closed borders and we stay within our bubble and we don't interact with people of different cultures, then all we're going to experience is what we're good at or what we've been told to value, which I think in a lot of ways puts us out of balance. And I think I just see this huge opportunity uh, on the horizon for us as a global society as those borders are grayed a bit and as the world becomes more integrated like take the great food from Italy, for example, and take the great economy from the U.S. and bring your best to the world in a spirit of abundance to see how can we do more together. And it feels like that's what you're doing at Coconut VA. Would you, what would you say is your vision and your mission for what you're trying to do? Yeah, I, I think that's great. Um, and, and, and like even as much as I've traveled, right? I, I've, I've lived out of the country now for almost three years, uh, 14 different countries. I've only traveled 5% of the world. It's embarrassing, only 5%, like who am I to make a judgment about the world when I haven't seen 95% of it? Uh, and so I, I, I think you're right. It's, it's finding the optimizations in other cultures and learning from them. There's, there's different perspectives. There's perspectives in life, there's perspectives in business. In business, um, you know, certainly it's, hey, what type of talent are you trying to grow? Go to the country that has that best talent. Find out what um, optimizations you have. So, for example, with with our, our virtual assistants, we're able to give them health care, paid time off, uh, paid holidays. We have a whole profit sharing initiative where 50% of our profit goes to a philanthropy board that then distributes that how they see fit. Like, to me, that is a beautiful vision of what can be done when you combine things. And I, I think it's also important that, you know, there's always the objection that you feel like, am I taking advantage of a, an impoverished third world nation? All of that, that leaves. When you, when you put boots on the ground there and you realize the opportunity and how much you were pulling people up, oh my gosh, that, that took any reservation I ever had and fueled me with such passion to, to fulfill on our mission to building an organization that has 500 VAs placed in, in U.S. earning jobs. Uh, you know, right now we're at 50, we're one-tenth of the way there. That was really motivating. But it's also important to say, you know, as you travel, the more that you learn the optimization for culture, the more you start to look at how can I progress and self-actualize and where do I go to best learn those things? And so I, I learned to freedive in... Uh, in the Philippines, or sorry, in uh, Thailand. And being exposed to a, a heavily Buddhist culture uh, has really opened my eyes um, to a lot of the benefits in uh, with breathing and especially with mindfulness. And it's kind of put me on a journey where depends if I get accepted or not, but I might be going on one of those 10 day silent uh, Vipassana retreats uh, in India next month. So I'm not sure if I get in, but it's, it's going to going to India. That's where like the world's best is. Go there. If you find that, you know, 
you want to be um, like my wife might become a master scuba diver. Like they all Koh Tao, Thailand. So that's where you go. So you start looking for these pockets in the world where you want to become, you know, the best salsa dancer, like go to Spain, go to Argentina. Where is that at? And you go find that you learn from the best people and it typically comes at the best price. Um, so yeah, it all, I think it fits into like becoming a better world economy that comes closer to hitting their potential. I love that. It's a big world out there and there's more opportunity than ever. So just be willing to take a leap and go for it. And, you know, my props to you for, uh, not only, you know, being entrepreneurial and starting, you know, different businesses with a mindset to try and keep family first and your own mental health in the right spot, but then having a business that's led by a mission that's trying to help others. And I liked how you said lifting other people up along the way. And, uh, I think when your goal is to help other people win, you can't help, but win yourself. So thanks for sharing all of this, uh, you know, wisdom and your experience with us. I've really enjoyed this interview. Is there anything you'd like to say in closing to wrap this up? Ooh, no, I mean, just keep having, uh, an open mind and, and get different perspectives. And the more you do that, and the more you go on your self-actualization process, the more you start saying sorry to all the people that you've hurt in the past, <laughs> the more you realize how flawed you are. Um, and yeah, just how, you know, we're all on this planet trying to, trying to be happy and, and live and, and love one another. And it's a journey. And the more you understand about yourself, I think the more slack you give to other people. And that just might be the slack they need to become their best self. Very, very well said. I won't add anything onto that other than the way I end every episode. Clowns to the left me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Eric. We'll see you next time. Clowns to the left me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the